Hi, Curious Listener. Welcome to Corn Fed Killer. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. The case I have for you today finds us in rural Missouri in the late 1990s. This is the story of the murder of Rita Polite. The Polite family, parents Rita and Ed, daughters Crystal and Melanie, and son Michael, lived in the tiny rural town of Hopewell, Hopewell, Missouri. This was about 70 or so miles from St. Louis. Crystal and Melanie claim that Ed was mentally abusive to their mom and that he cheated on her all the time. And yet she stayed with him. She loved him. She really wanted to try to work it out. Eventually, Crystal and Melanie grew up and moved out of the house, and things between the couple seemed to escalate after that. Michael recalls seeing violence between his mother and father on more than one occasion. In 1997, police responded to a domestic violence call at the house. Michael, then 13, told officers that he had seen his father hit his mother, knocking her down, and choking her. Rita had finally had enough, and shortly after this incident, she filed for divorce. In the divorce decree, she cited his infidelity. The divorce, obviously, was not an amicable one, and Michael had a very difficult time. He was going through it now. He had failed seventh grade twice, he'd been skipping school, And he also had a penchant for starting fires. And at one point, Michael was even hospitalized for behavioral issues after he threatened to kill his mother and himself. He says that he told his mother that he was going to put her six feet under, just like her mom and dad. Michael says now that this was the biggest regret of his life. Michael's sisters recalled that their father, Ed, put a lot of pressure on Michael, and he liked to pit him in between he and his ex-wife. And Ed was really pissed off that Rita got custody of Michael, that she was awarded child support and alimony. And in fact, he reportedly had an outburst in the court and said, "You'll, you'll die before you'll ever see any of that money or any of my money, something to that effect. And Michael recalls that his father even tried to bribe him with money, saying that he would give him money if he came and lived with him. Michael refused. He wanted to stay with his mom. He was close to his mom, and she was, you know, his protector and his biggest fan. He says that she would record him at all his sports games, baseball games, and he was, she was always cheering the loudest, right? Good memories. These memories would become all the more important as December 4th, 1998, would be Rita Polite's last day on this earth. Rita Polite was working at a local tavern that night, and 14-year-old Michael was at home. He says that he rode his bike to the general store in town, something he and his friends would do all the time. There he met up with his friend Josh, And Michael asked Josh if he wanted to have a sleepover, if he wanted to stay the night at his house. Josh did, 
and the pair rode their bikes back to Michael's house. They played chess, they played video games, probably had some snacks, you know, just normal sleepover, kids hanging out type stuff. At around midnight, the boys got bored and they walked down to the nearby railroad tracks and they started a fire on the tracks, you know, with some gasoline, not like a huge, you know, destroy property type fire, just like a little fire on the tracks. It's something that um, boys would do from time to time just to entertain themselves out here in the country, right? All right. So a short time after that, they went back to the house. And a little while later, Rita came home from her job and she told Michael she loved him and she told the boys, you know, I'll see you in the morning. And then they all went to bed. Rita in her room and Michael on his bed in his room with Josh on the floor next to the bed. At about 6.30 the next morning, the boys wake up and the room is starting to fill with smoke. Rita's mom's room was, I'm sorry, <laughs> Michael's mom, Rita's room was right across from her son's and he could see a glow coming from his, from her room, a fire. So Josh ran next door for help while Michael called out to his mother and she didn't answer. He ran outside and grabbed a garden hose thinking, you know, I'm going to put this fire out. So he grabs the hose. He runs back into the house, into his mother's bedroom. And that's when 14 year old Michael was confronted with a most horrific sight. His mother was lying on the floor. Michael could see blood on her legs and she was on fire from the waist up. He tried unsuccessfully to put the fire out with the garden hose. Michael called his older sister, Crystal. She picked up their other sister, Melanie, and the sisters drove to the house. Crystal said that by the time they got there, which was very, you know, a few minutes later, police, fire, and ambulances were already there. Crystal says their little brother had soot on his face with tracks running through the soot where tears had fallen. Police quickly determined that this was a homicide. Rita was bludgeoned to death and then set on fire. The scene was quite disturbing. Rita's bedroom walls had splashes of blood on them, her bed, the floor covered in blood, and of course on her body. Police looked for a weapon, something that the killer could have used to strike her, but nothing was ever found. The fire marshal determined that an accelerant, likely gasoline, had been used to set Rita's body alight. Michael and Josh were both taken to the police station to be questioned. Michael was questioned about, of course, what happened the night that night, and police thought Michael was acting too calm, that he didn't seem upset given what he had just been through, especially because he was the one to find his mother's body on fire and, you know, bloodied. Now, curious listener, we hear this all the time in true crime cases where authorities will make judgments or family members will make judgments on victims of crime or the families of victims of crime um, about how they react to seeing something horrific or to hearing the news of something horrific. And, you know, sometimes these things can be telling, 
But a lot of times it's just the way a person reacts. Um, there's such a thing as shock where your systems kind of just shut down and you go through the motions when something so traumatic ha happens. Your body does what it can to protect you when, when dealing with trauma. So you may just shut down. There may not be a flood of tears. And then again, the, the next person might scream and thrash and, you know, cry their eyes out. It's, it's an individual thing. And a person really doesn't have much control over it, if at all. All right. So at the police station, they conducted what was called a voice stress test on Michael and he failed. Now the voice stress test is something that isn't widely used. It wasn't even back then in 1998. And you know, it's something that's not admissible in court. It's probably even less effective than a lie detector test. It's the same concept. It just measures the voice waves, the vocal waves in, in comparison to your um, blood pressure and heart rate and all that stuff. So it's not, it's nothing really. It's nothing. All right. So police indicated that the accelerant sniffing dog that they brought in on the scene alerted on Michael's shoes. After these two things, young Michael was now a suspect, not a boy who had just lost his beloved mother. His buddy Josh was also questioned about what happened and he had the same story as Michael. He said, you know, we went to bed, we woke up around 6.30 and we don't know what happened. We didn't hear anything, we didn't see anything. We woke up to the smoke. Now, over the next couple days, the boys were both questioned several times. And on December 7th, in a recorded interview with police, Josh says that he woke up sometime in the middle of the night that night. This was something that he had not said previously. And he said he woke up because he heard a noise and then what sounded like a woman's voice. He said that Michael was not in the room when he woke up. Shortly after this interview, Michael Polite was arrested for the murder of his own mother, Rita Polite. Now, Michael's sisters, as well as his aunt and uncle who lived right next door, were absolutely stunned. They did not believe it for a second. How could 14-year-old Michael murder his own mother? His aunt and uncle were the first people, aside from the authorities, to see Michael after the murder that night, being as they lived right next door. And they said that Michael was upset. They didn't find anything odd about his behavior at all and that he loved his mother. The uncle comments, you know, he was always hugging his mom. They got along well, even though, you know, he wasn't a perfect child and he was going through something. She was devoted to him and he to her. And they, they did not believe it. There was no way he could have murdered her. And his sisters were just flabbergasted. They thought, the, the, you know, the police must be grasping at straws and certainly they're not going to go through with this. Certainly they're going to figure out that this could not be possible. Unfortunately, they were dead wrong. And Michael Polite goes to trial for the murder of his mother. The trial begins in January of 2002. The prosecution's biggest evidence were those shoes that Michael had been wearing that night. The ones that the dog sniffed out 
as having accelerant on them. Now, I want to point out, and Michael does point out to police at some point, that even if they actually did have gasoline on them, he had started a fire earlier that night with gasoline. So it could have been that. And there was no gas can or anything like that found at the scene in the bedroom or anything like that. So, all right. Additionally, the prosecution had three witnesses who testified that Michael confessed to killing his mother during a suicide attempt at the juvenile detention center, saying, quote, I haven't cared since I killed my mother, end quote. Now, Michael maintains that he said, they, I haven't cared since they killed my mother, not I. But they had three witnesses to the contrary. Interestingly enough, Michael's friend Josh, who was with him that night, was not called as a witness, nor were the jurors shown that taped interview with police. Now, I can only imagine that the prosecution doesn't call him and doesn't show that tape because they figure that it's not going to help them. Um, you can see the tape if you watch the 48 Hours episode on this. And in the tape, it seems it's off, seems to me anyway that the police officers are really leading him into saying that, and he, he doesn't even appear to believe it. So that's probably why. Not sure why the defense wouldn't have called him. It w seems to me that it would make sense for the defense to call him. All right, so the defense pointed out the lack of evidence. And, you know, for example, if Michael had brutally, savagely beaten his mother, wouldn't he be covered in blood? He wasn't, nor were bloody clothes or towels or anything of the sort found. No blood was found in his room, leading to his room, nothing like that. Furthermore, Michael had no scratches, no bruises or other such marks on his body that would indicate that there had been any kind of, that he had been involved in any kind of a struggle. And like we said earlier, no weapons were ever recovered from the scene. So the cases are the cases presented, both sides, goes to the jury. The jury takes a little more than four hours, and then they come back with a guilty verdict. Michael Polite was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Michael was stunned. His family was stunned. He said that he really believed that he would be found innocent because he was. He was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary. Now, five years after he was convicted, Michael wrote a letter to the Missouri Innocence Project, and they agreed to take on his case. They worked on it for several years, and then Some new attorneys, Trisha Bushnell, Megan Crane, and Mark Emerson became involved in his case. And they wholeheartedly agreed that Michael Polite was innocent of the murder, and they set out to prove it by disproving the case against him, which they believed was not much of a case at all. Attorney Megan Crane said of the case, quote, Mike was convicted because he was a kid plain and simple. They said he wasn't emotional enough. Trauma doesn't look like what people think it should look like. 
end quote. Now, you know, as we said earlier, it looks different on everybody, right? Uh, trauma is not one size fits all, right? It looks different on everyone. All right. So the attorneys picked apart the evidence about the accelerant. Firstly, a sample of the carpet taken from Rita's room at the time of the murder was tested and no gasoline was found on the carpet. Now you would think if someone poured gasoline over her while she was lying on the carpet, that some would get on the carpet. More importantly, the gas that prosecutors said was found on Michael's shoes, the new attorneys pointed out that solvents used in footwear adhesive have many similarities to gasoline and that this is what the dogs could have been alerting to. And of course, there's also that alternate explanation about the fire he took or he had started earlier, if indeed there was gasoline on there. But the Missouri Crime Lab agreed with the point about the shoe adhesive. And they said they agree that that's what it could have been, but they did point out that this was not widely known in the late 90s when the murder took place. So what about Josh, the friend that was there, right? Now Josh, Josh says now that the questioning by police was utterly relentless, and he was just a kid, right? He remembers saying to his mother, quote, they keep saying that I'm lying. I don't even know if I'm telling the truth anymore, end quote. So if you can put yourself in Josh's shoes back then, he's a 15-year-old or 16-year-old kid. I think he was 15, a 15-year-old kid, you know, and his 14-year-old friend is going down for murder. And he's thinking, holy shit, I was there too. Are they going to try to get me for something? And the cops are berating you, yelling at you. You're scared to death, telling you you're lying. You're lying. You saw something. You did something, you know, so... I can see how he would be led into saying something that wasn't true. Can you? So what about the tape? The tape where he says Michael was out of the room. Now, Josh today, he says, I don't really remember ever saying that. And it didn't happen. And he said, if I did say that, what I meant was that I couldn't have seen him in the bed or not because I was on the floor and you couldn't see into the bed without getting up. Now, Michael believes that his father is responsible for his mother's murder. Now, his father, at the time of the murder, he was looked into, and it was confirmed that he had been at work 80 miles away. Although they didn't look into it that hard, right? They had tunnel vision for Michael. Now, Michael thinks that his father hired his cousin Johnny Polite to kill his mother. Johnny Polite lived right in the town of Hopewell. An interesting thing about that is that Johnny Polite was spotted near the home, walking down the road by more than one person around the time of the murders. And other people would even say that Johnny acted kind of strangely during the investigation, kind of asking people, you know, what do you know about it? What are people saying? Um, so to me, this is definitely a lead that needs to be pursued and should have been, I should say, should have been pursued back in 1998. All right. So Michael's new defense attorneys have filed a motion to have his case, have his case reopened. 
And as luck would have it, in 2021, Missouri passed a law giving second chances to juvenile offenders who had been convicted of serious crimes. So Michael and his attorneys presented his case. And as a result, Michael Polite was granted parole and released from prison in April of 2022. Since his release, Michael has gotten his driver's license and he's found work as a carpenter, but he still has this felony conviction hanging over his head. He's still a convicted felon. It still says in his background that he murdered his mother and he maintains his innocence. His lawyers have filed motions and even the attorney general filed motions to have his conviction overturned. In the meantime, local police have reopened the case into Rita's murder and say that they are committed to finding out the truth, whether that points to Michael or whether that points to someone else. So stay tuned, curious listener. We will definitely be following this story and I will let you know of any updates. Now, Michael says that he believes that one day they will get justice for his mother. And for Michael, I have to say, I, you know, commend his optimism, you know, after if he is really innocent, after being falsely accused and sent to prison um, at such a young age, he's now 38 and went into the system at 14. So, you know. He's pretty optimistic after being fucked over like that, um, if you agree that he's innocent. So what do you think? What do you think, curious listener? Me, I don't think there's enough to convict him. Now, I wasn't there, so I can't say for, you know, certain, not certainly not 100% that Michael didn't do it, but I really, really don't think he did. You know, in cases like this, you always have to look for a motive, and there just isn't one. There just isn't one. Not for Michael. For his father, there certainly is money, right? So we will be following it and we will see what shakes out. Let me know what you think. Send us an email at cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com or, you know, send me a DM, a PM on Instagram, cornfedkillerpodcast. Um, as always, you can find pictures on the Instagram as well. Before I let you go, we are going to get into our back in the day. (laughs) So our back in the day segment today is I'm bringing you another old timey medicine that is just absolutely crackers. All right. The elixir was called Vin Mariani. It was a French chemist who came up with it, a guy named Angelo Mariani, and he invented it in 1863. And it was, curious listener, essentially a cocaine-infused wine. It was a Bordeaux wine, which I believe is like a dark red. I'm not a big wine connoisseur, although I kind of would like to be. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure that's what that is. If I'm wrong, let me know. And this Bordeaux wine was treated with cocoa leaves. 
Now the ethanol or the alcohol in the wine extracted the cocaine from the coca leaves, making Vin Mariani an extremely potent concoction. In fact, the drinker would ingest 7.2 milligrams of cocaine per ounce. <laughs> so what was Vin Mariani used to treat? Well, Vin Mariani was marketed as a sort of cure-all. The ads claimed that Vin Mariani, quote, health was a health strength energy, would restore health, strength, energy, and vitality, end quote. So why wouldn't you take, take some, right? <laughs> uh, Vin Mariani very quickly became one of the most popular medicinal wines of the time. In fact, Queen Victoria loved it. Loved it. Pope Leo VIII loved it so much that he even awarded it a Vatican gold medal. And uh, this medal would appear in the advertisement so people would see it's endorsed by the Pope. It's got to be safe. It's got to be good. So, you know, interesting. Thomas Edison also loved the shit and he endorsed it as well, claiming that it enabled him to stay up for hours and hours while he was inventing. And President Ulysses S. Grant also downed the stuff, says that he wrote his autobiography while taking the Vin Mariani. So <laughs> there you have it, curious listener, another old timey medicine, quote unquote. Um, I just thought that was a fun story and I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back with you on Friday for a spooky episode. Until next time, curious listener, bye.